Hello and welcome back to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Ruth. And I'm Jason from the US. On this episode, we're delving into Origin Stories, a collection of short stories which explore the lives of some of the Doctor's friends before they began travelling in the TARDIS. Of the 11 stories contained in this volume, though, five of them are stories about companions meeting the Doctor when they're children and then forgetting all about it. So these are Chemistry, uh, which sees Ace meet the 13th Doctor while she's still at school, Myriapod Mutiny, sees Yaz and Ryan bumping into the second Doctor on a museum school trip. In Murmuration, the fourth Doctor meets the schoolgirl Sarah Jane Smith. Martha is the eponymous Doctor Jones. In Jasbinda Belan's Clara Oswald and the Enchanted Forest, the impossible girl goes on an adventure with the 11th Doctor long before he saved her from the great intelligence's machinations. So I think maybe five stories in a collection of 11 is possibly too many to have this same basic premise. I think a couple of problems I have with this, it makes the universe seem much smaller in Doctor Who. If, you know, if, if companions are bumping into other incarnations of the Doctor before they start traveling with them. Because you, you want to have sort of science fiction stories with, the, with these characters. Um, but, but also, if they've already been exposed to too much science fiction stuff before they meet the Doctor, it isn't then them, them having their eyes open to a bigger world uh, and, and being taken on fantastical adventures. So, uh, for Ruth, what were your thoughts on these stories? Okay, uh, cracks knuckles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts about this particular uh, theme running through these stories, and they're not particularly uh, positive ones. No, it's not mm. that the individual stories are, don't have merit in, as on their own, but it's the premise I take issue with. Like you've already pointed out that. It, it does make the universe feel smaller and, and you know, it does kind of take away from the very kind of magic of them first meeting the Doctor, you know, like, it, I, I know these are kind of dubious in terms of canon, just like most EU things or Doctor Who itself, you know, the canon's all over the place, but it still kind of feels a bit cheap to me, you know, to to take these stories and just say oh yeah there were these kind of mini stories that didn't really mean anything because they forgot anyway and um and really the only one that mechanically kind of works is the 11th doctor running into clara because he was already checking throughout her timeline um so yeah we know that he kept running into her so logically that kind of makes sense um and they they do have a throwaway line mentioning that but just generally i i I was really hoping with these stories, and and some of them were like this, but uh, when I saw this book uh, announced for the first time, I thought, oh my God, I was really excited to get some insight into their past um, because, you know, characters like Clara or uh, or Martha, um, you know, these are characters whose childhoods that, you know, we've only seen them in flashes or through implication. Um and I kind of wanted some insight into that, but without the Doctor being involved, because it, it feels to me almost that uh, whoever commissioned this particular set of themes for the for these stories, they didn't have enough faith in the companions to stand on their own. You know, they were kind of like, well, we need the Doctor to be in it because it's a Doctor Who anthology collection. And I strongly believe that that kind of really wasn't necessary at all. And, um, you know, all of these characters could have had I mean not even necessarily alien encounters just something some sort of 
insight into their past or a conflict or something that could have offered something different and new and a new insight into their characters but really it just feels like it's going by the numbers really to me you know oh this is an alien thing that they encounter randomly oh the doctor's here who happened to be investigating oh they have to forget and and it's like what what did that change what did that <laughs> you know what did that really bring to the table and it also kind of removes the companion's agency as well which is a real sticking point for me I mean like for example with Martha like there's this kind of implication that the doctor was what inspired her to become a doctor and it's like no, like she can have that inspiration on her own she doesn't need the doctor to have or to have some weird kind of encounter to be able to have that and, and like um you know, with with Clara, for example, there's a very big thing in her ending that the whole memory wipe thing is not okay, you know? And I, I'm not a big fan of... I, I, I liked how they did it in the Sarah Jane story where he was just like, oh, because of the timelines, you'll just forget anyway. I don't really like the whole, oh, I'm going to make you forget. And it, 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 it kind of... It showcases that power imbalance between the Doctor and the Companions and... This, again, it just kind of feels regressive in terms of how the show has progressed, critiquing that kind of tendency of the Doctor. And, yeah, like I said, it just felt kind of like a waste of potential because there's a lot that they could have done, but it felt like they went for the most obvious and easy and kind of uninteresting angle they could with these stories rather than doing something new and different and and unique with these characters. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about the long run. (laughs) No. And, and I think another thing is, you know, about the, the lack of impact on the, on the characters by meeting the Doctor earlier is there are two characters who, whose lives were massively impacted by meeting the Doctor early, who are Amy and Davros. And, and it's a big part of their stories in this. So that just highlights even more mm-hmm. how throwaway the other ones are because it, it's such a huge part of their story that they met the Doctor, you know, canonically in the TV show when they were children. Mm-hmm. So that, that it even even more, I think, uh, yeah, highlights the, um, the sort of pointlessness of, uh, <laughs> of yeah, these five. and especially compared with the two companion stories that don't have this uh, theme, which is Amy's Amy and Rory's, and um, I think it was Joe's. Um, mm-hmm. Both of theirs, I mean, I, I, Amy and Rory's kind of felt rushed just because of the the lack of time versus what was actually happening but it still felt like it was very much Amy's story um and it was driven by her you know um and with the Joan I I find the Joan really charming because it was just kind of an insight into her life and I really enjoyed that and that's kind of what I wanted going into this just having some insights into their past their relationships with their families and and things like that without the doctor being present because he's not you know they're not needed to make the the story compelling um and you've got enough variety with the characters to have room to you know experiment a bit more what about you jason uh, what did you make of these uh, these five that we've grouped together I'm going to echo what Ruth said a minute ago. So this is a new series collection, right? The only characters who are focused are characters who have been in the new series or at least new series adjacent, like Joe Grant, who was in the uh, Sarah Jane Adventures two-parter. We know that in the new series, the Doctor chooses his companions because they have some specific quality 
he auditions them. He doesn't just let anybody on board. It is not like the classic series where half the companions are there because they're accidental stowaways or were abducted, in the case of Ian and Barbara, and to a lesser extent, Dodo. If we're going to get origin stories for these people, we want to know what makes them them, right? We want to know what Mm -hmm. instilled in them the quality that made the doctor choose them as a companion. Now, again, nobody sets out to write a bad short story. There's no anthology editor who says, ooh, gee, let me get to work and make sure this thing is horrible. This thing was written in good faith. There's some really good stories in here. And even the stories I didn't like have some really good turns of phrase that I've highlighted in my in my Kindle copy. But, again, I don't want to presume to speak for the editor, but it's not interesting for me personally if the character's main drive, the reason the Doctor chooses them is because they've already met the Doctor in the past. Now, this is especially obvious for me in the Clara story, let's face it, the new series, even though it's new, has some real problems with misogyny, whether intentional or otherwise, especially in the RTD and the Stephen Moffat era, where you have this immortal, ancient time lord who is stalking uh, you know, girls barely out of their teens, usually with ulterior motives in mind. So for the doctor to be stalking Clara when she's a teenager – if this was your first exposure to Doctor Who ever, you would never, ever want to go back to this series ever, <laughs> ever again, right? That is so, a very good point. I wanted to know what makes Clara, Clara. And the mm-hmm. answer to that question should not be, oh, because she met the Doctor when she was 14 years old and attacked by sentient trees that look like bad CGI when produced in 2011, right? The stories that I like the most, and we'll get to these, are the stories where we see the character have an independent adventure with agency Mm -hmm. before the doctor shows up. And when the anthology does that, it's incredible. When it comes to these five stories about the doctor stalking teenage versions of 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 his or her former friends didn't quite work so much for me. And for that reason, I think it was a mistake to put Sophie Aldred's story first. So the whole point of the story is that future doctor comes to her when she's, you know, what, 14, 15 years old before she gets taken by the time storm and gives her all the motivation that she's going to need to refine Nitro 9 and be the person that the doctor is going to pick up on Ice World in 1987. That just set me off on the back foot. And I thought if all the stories are going to be like this, this collection was not really worth the price of purchase. Again, Sophie is a wonderful person. We've all met her. Anybody who has spoken to Sophie for five seconds knows she's wonderful. This story was not perhaps well-conceived. I want to see Ace doing something daring Mm -hmm. and adventurous before she goes to Ice World. I don't want to see Ace merely being programmed by the 13th Doctor. Now, consider the Katie Manning short story. As far as I'm concerned, that is just Katie telling her autobiography, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Doctor's not – yes, there, there is the Doctor-adjacent character that she voiced in the audio series in it, but it's basically Katie Manning just writing as herself. That was the kind of vibe that I was hoping to get with the Sophie exactly, Slash yeah. story. Not, oh, the 13th Doctor is, is retroactively stalking Ace uh, centuries after they, they parted company, which honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense from uh, in-universe purposes. 
So I've gotten my criticisms out of the way. One or two stories like that is fine. Five is a little too much. And especially the Ace and Clara stories could have used a little bit of a deeper think as to what does it mean for the doctor to be stalking a teenage girl? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the Clara stuff, obviously, um, I'm, <laughs> I've am i been working for many years now on a very Clara-centric series. And um, uh, I've... I, I don't want to go into too much, but we've obviously like looked into her past. Um, me and Caitlin, who run the series, we've we've written out a whole timeline of of uh, of events just to try and make sense based on uh, what the show gives us and how. I mean, like like most dates in Doctor Who, especially in the Moffat era, it's all over the place. Like she has two different ages, two different birth years, but you know we we worked it out anyway. Um, so, you know, I, I obviously naturally feel kind of, uh, I don't want to say protective over her character, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very into her motivations and her past and her, the things that molded her. And I, I totally agree with you, Jason. Like, I, it, it's one thing, I mean, it's, it's obviously questionable that he is, the 11th Doctor was going through a high timeline in the first place, but at least they had the courtesy to kind of make it look like, oh, he just checked her, saw her as a child and then cut to her mum dying and then he just kind of left it there and you're kind of like, okay. Uh, But the implication that he has been, like, thoroughly, like, just present, especially when she's a teenager and, and actually interacting with her. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very dubious. And, um, again, like the big, the fundamental problem of these stories is it does rob the companions of agency in their own story. It, it takes away meaning from their, their stories and their relationships with the doctor. And I, like I said, especially with a character like Clara, who's kind of fundamental, her, the premise of our entire arc, at least in, when you get into the Capaldi era, is about deconstructing that uneven power dynamic between the Doctor and Companion. You know, especially when you get to Hellbent, it's fundamentally about that. It's it's about critiquing that uh, that power dynamic and flipping it on its head. Um, and and like I said, with the, explicitly with the Doctor doing the whole Donna thing of, oh, you're going to forget. I was just thinking about Bill and, um, you know, in, in the pilot, she has a one-off adventure with the Doctor and he's about to do the same thing. And, you know, she says, how would you feel if someone did this to you? And I just feel like that point of critique is so often lost in kind of generic Doctor Who stories, quote unquote. Um, and it never really, it always rubs me the wrong way when it comes back because I'm like, we've, we've done this, we've critiqued this. It's wrong to, to remove someone's agency like this. I, I didn't like it when they did it in, uh, in Spyfall Part 2 as well, you know, right, um, right. with um, Ada Lovelace and um, uh, was it Nyoranyak Khan as well? And yeah. it just feels like we've moved past this concept. Um, and I'm sure Ross T. Davies is going to examine it and deconstruct it uh, with Donna in the 60th anniversary. So that alone is something that bothers me. And and then you have to look at the whole, as I said before, these these characters can stand on their own. They don't need the Doctor <laughs> to to have a story worth telling. And in fact, it actually actively weakens the stories to have the Doctor in them, in my opinion. Um, 
you could you you lose uh as jason said their opportunity to demonstrate what makes them special what makes them heroes in their own right rather than the doctor being like oh i'm here oh i saved the day bye it's like what what did we gain from this what what insight did this offer this is just another um one of these little doctor who mini stories that don't go anywhere or offer anything and like i said i've read these sorts of stories before um i've read all of the sort of anthologies for like uh, a shielder and me missy river um all of these like the girl she, the the day she saved the doctor collection and things like that and you you, you notice so quickly that the non-companion characters have so much more kind of depth and richness in their short story collections because they're allowed to be the focus they're allowed to be the hero they're not just there as a kind of accessory to whatever the doctor's doing or just the wide-eyed window you know while the doctor's doing something heroic um and it just felt very perfunctory to me and uh you know very not what i was hoping for really i felt like the the sophie aldred one there was two things really one is that it seems to sort of tell the story of the uh, the uh the anecdote that she's relating in battlefield outside the pub about blowing up the was it like class fives prize pottery pig collection but that story is completely different because she's talking about her art teacher mrs parkinson and how she throws it over her shoulder and that's when it hits the the the, the pigs and that blows up so it's Either she blew up two sets of pottery <laughs> collections, or like they haven't even like re, uh, you know they they didn't really you know even research it enough to, um, to to see what the dialogue is. Anyway, Mrs. Parkinson, the art teacher, asked me what it is, right? So I told her it was a lump of school plasticine. <laughs> well, I couldn't tell her what it really was—the homemade gelignite. <laughs> We're in the school corridor by now. Mrs. Parkinson asked me to put what she thinks is school plasticine back in the art room. So what did you do? I tossed it over my shoulder. Like that. <laughs> Landed right in the middle of Class 1C's prize-winning pottery pig collection. And boom! <laughs> boom! So, unless the implication is that the doctor implanted that false memory of how the explosion happened into ace's mind at the end of the story but that that's not there in the text it's not really implied and then the other thing is what, how it seems such a massively wasted opportunity is because as say they they kind of the format requires them to have a science fiction adventure in a way that it doesn't um doesn't make sense for them to have science fiction adventures you could have an adventure with ace on ice world how mm-hmm. this 16 year old girl found herself on a, an alien space station in the future and had to be tough and resourceful and find a job and kind of make her way there. That would have been a really, really cool story. Um, and yeah, it, is, it just seems that's, like that seems like a massively wasted opportunity. To that's me. a really good point. And like, I suppose with Clara, you could have easily just had done one of her Echo stories. I know that's technically not an orange <laughs> story, but I would have loved to see what happened to Oswin before she ended up being converted into a Dalek or just any number of Echoes you could pick from for Clara. So I, I almost would have preferred that more than this kind of half-hearted look at her childhood that wasn't even really a look at her childhood. Yeah, because presumably there are a lot of Claras on modern-day Earth because that's where <laughs> the Doctor spends uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of time, isn't it? So, um, so you can... Uh, there's, well, there's yeah. a lot there. 
And, and that would have at least given her agency because, you know, it's about her saving the doctor, not the doctor saving her or just, and, 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 you know, the running theme there is very much of the, these kind of chance encounters where she ends up saving him. And, and I mean, that is an area that definitely could do with more exploration, maybe not necessarily for this particular anthology, but it certainly would have been better than, than what we got. And this is a facetious and glib point, but we know that Clara was present at every single moment in the doctor's timeline and rescued him from every single adventure ever. Why don't you take one of the worst stories and retell it from <laughs> Clara's point of view? Why don't we take exactly, a bad yeah. classic series story like Time Lash or The Android Invasion <laughs> and tell us how Clara makes the story okay? Tell us the good version of Time Lash or the good version of Android Invasion because of Clara or the good mm-hmm. version of Fear Her or uh, the good version of uh, you know, some other forgettable uh, new series uh, trifle, too many of which there are to mention. That's the facetious answer, but anything but the doctor stalking a 14-year-old girl uh, in the woods, all right? So this, uh, that would actually make a great anthology. Like, I, I think they should commission that. Like, you know, they have, like, the Missy Chronicles and stuff. Do a Clara one and just have all of her various incarnations just going in the background of different Doctor Who serials. I think that would be fun. Um yeah, um, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking back through all of these ones. And, um, you know, the one that annoyed me the most, I mean, the the Clara one, aside from the whole dodginess of the premise, and I thought the, the characterization of her mum was really weird. I mean, it was very generic. It was very, um, this is a generic teenage mum, and this is a generic teenage daughter relationship. There wasn't really much thought into, you know, how... How the, it, it felt very by the numbers with me, and that's that. I've I've noticed that's a tendency with writers uh, for Clara. Uh, um, she's always characterised with the Eleventh Doctor. I rarely see ones with her in Twelve, um, except the novels that they commissioned. And she's always played as the generic companion when she's very much not that. Um, uh, and I understand why they tend to characterize that way more when they use her with the 11th doctor because she becomes more into her own with the 12th doctor but yeah that's a that's an annoying trend with with um these two stories that Clara pops up in she's very uniformly generic and there's not much you know spark there um anyway uh the the other one that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way um was the Martha one and uh I I didn't like it for a lot of reasons um I I I, I like the dynamic with her mum and but the whole like five minute trip to the Salem witch trials felt very uh in poor taste to me it's like oh here's a here's a girl who's going to be burned at the stake for being a witch uh we have to leave her here bye that's just how it is and it I don't know it felt like if you're going to go there with the story you need to actually wrestle with the implications of it and not just have Martha as a teenager just be transported to this horrific time period and meet someone who's destined to die and then the doctor just very callously is like well you all have to forget now and we can't change anything shrug bye and yeah that felt very crass to me and um i i i couldn't help but think of of similar stories like the the witch finders or um 
it's a, it's a different situation, but I, I think of um, my one of my favorite anthology collections was uh, the Ashilda Lady Me ones. Um, I really, really enjoyed those because they were so rich in characterization and complex. And, uh, you know, they really wrestle with like these very heavy concepts and themes in a way that gives them respect and right and, um, you know, like the, the plague and things like that. So, so this just felt like a glaring contrast in tone, and and it just did not feel like it fit fit the story. It almost felt like the pitch to the writer was, or the 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 brief to the writer was, you have to include Martha going to the past, and you can't actually, you don't have enough time to actually do anything with that, and. Martha has to forget by the end so they, they can't do anything you know they can't do anything that would be emotionally resonant because that would change Martha's story too much it would you know it interfered with the canon too much they didn't have enough space to explore it so just don't just don't go there send it to another time period if you have to but not you know not where little girls are being burned at the stake <laughs> so yeah it's just too big to wrestle with in a short story isn't it it needs mm-hmm. The doctor needs to spend time there, and the companion needs to spend time there, and 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 learn about it. And the characters, like you say, it's it is far too fleeting a a visit to to tackle to deal with it at all. And just to jump back on Ruth's point about the Salem witch trials, the doctor has been there before in print. Now it's out of print; it's from 1998, so it's almost 25 years old. But Steve Lyons wrote a book for the past Doctor Adventure series called The Witch Hunters which is the first Doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan, going back to Salem in 1692. And that much more wrestles with the implications of what it means to be unable to rescue these 19 women who were all killed because of this moral panic over over witchcraft. And again, if you uh, don't want to be spoiled for that book, it's worth seeking out. Just uh, hit the 30-second button twice. I'll try and wrap this up in 60 seconds. But at the end of the book, the doctor takes Rebecca Nurse with him as a companion for a finite series of adventures to let her know that it's going to be okay and history is going to remember her kindly, even though she has to be killed. That was something Doctor Who had not been doing in 1998. It isn't until Vincent and the doctor that we see the doctor do that again. And in in a much more widely seen episode, Vincent and the doctor, rather than a now out-of-print book with a limited run. Doctor Who has already told this story before. It comes across mm-hmm. as much more cursory and not so well thought through. You know, there's a girl who's going to be killed. The Doctor goes, whoops, we better not say anything. Back away quietly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's the, I'm very much of the belief that if you're going to touch a real historical atrocity and a real person who died, you've got to give it the time and the care and the sensitivity it, it, the sensitivity it needs. If you go there at all, and again, kind of critiquing Spyfall again, um, they shouldn't have had you no know, in in your Khan in that story, in my opinion, like they should have had a story about her if they were going to touch that at all. I mean, they were originally going to film her execution scene. Um, and that fortunately didn't make it to air, but it was still, it's still again, the same sort of thing of this crass. You have to forget now, bon chance. Bye. And I, I just don't feel like in any story, 
if you can't give it the weight and the respect it deserves, then just don't touch it, you know, just don't touch it. Um, there's plenty of other historical figures to choose from. There's plenty of other, uh, you know, places and, and people where you don't have to rush things and, and, and kind of skate over things. Uh, so before before we move on from from these five stories, we we haven't really talked about the Myriapod mutiny. Um, <laughs> say about that. I think um, it does talk about Ryan's dyspraxia more than probably was was um, was given time on the on the TV show. So that was some interesting stuff from his point of view yeah. about about um, the difficulty of being in crowds and things like that. So that side of it was interesting, but but other than that consequential story isn't it this is where the weakness of the premise comes back in because you start off seeing okay we're getting some insight into ryan's perspective here which is really nice we're getting to see his relationship with his teachers and how obviously the sort of ableism involved um from his teachers as well and uh you see a bit of his relationship with yaz and i, I was really enjoying that and like the moment the aliens and the doctor shows up i'm kind of like do, do they have to can we not just have these characters i mean maybe the aliens but does the Doctor need to be here, you know? Like, it would have been nice to see the two characters just working things out on their own. And um, and the premise is fun, you know, them, them being lost at the Natural History Museum. Um, and this is actually something uh, I... I this is the thing I forgot that I wanted to bring up is uh, you said, Mark, about it making the universe feel smaller. Something I notice in almost every single one of these stories, the other events that they reference with events referenced in the show rather than kind of making up their own anecdotes from the characters past they you know with Clara she suddenly remembered this time she got lost in Blackpool Beach and you're like yes we know that from the show but you don't need to remind us of this you know there's I'm sure that's not the first thing that would come into her mind like it's not the only thing the only event that ever happened in her life um there are lots of little times like that where it would just repeat things that were mentioned in the show rather than just taking the initiative to invent their own kind of... It, there's always this fear of, of of carving out these stories, you know, for these characters. And really, they should be able to do whatever they want, you know, within reason. As long as they're well-researched and they understand the characters, then they can create their own anecdotes. They can come up with their own ideas for the characters and, and past events and rather than these very kind of 2D friends and these events that we've already heard about, it, it just makes it makes these characters feel very two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And I have dyspraxia, okay? And I was diagnosed in the 80s, which was the Stone Ages, when it took a lot longer to diagnose and nobody really knew what it was or had much patience for it. The way the new series treats that with Ryan is ludicrous because often the writer of the week would go oh dyspraxia can be overcome if you just wish really hard enough to jump across that chasm no that is Mm -hmm. not how it works and i read this story a couple of weeks ago just sitting here back now i had forgotten this story even touched upon his dyspraxia at all Mm -hmm. so uh, for me, it just didn't really – it seemed tacked on or not really mm-hmm. thought through. And this is another point that I want to make, and I promise that I'm not going to be this critical for the rest of the recording. There are stories that I really enjoyed, and we'll talk about those. Not every story needs to be science fiction. Mm-hmm. You can just tell exactly. a nice slow burn, non-sci-fi story about these characters' emotional lives. 
tell us about how Ryan got diagnosed. Did his, mm-hmm. you know, did people disbelieve him? Was, was it difficult? What's some incident that made people realize that he had it and needed to be tested? What sort of accommodations did he get at school? Give us something about his inner life, you know, or do an adventure with him and Yaz that is non-sci-fi that helps establish why they're going to be such close friends for some of the episodes of series 11 and 12. Doing a story about silly space beetles and a very out-of-character second doctor that's resolved in six pages is not quite as memorable for me as if they had taken a little more of a risk. Then again, this story, this is a collection that's aimed at kids. It's from Penguin's Puffin imprint. Maybe you don't want to go too deep and go all, you know, uh, you know, Mad Men or Sopranos or really deep, <laughs> giddy, gritty kitchen sink drama. Take a little more of a risk than a silly six-page story about silly space beetles. Exactly, exactly. That was exactly what, what I – because like you said, I was expecting, you know, without the – it, you know, minus the characters like the Master and Davros, who obviously would have sci-fi elements in their series, um, in their stories. Like, why children won't necessarily get bored just because there isn't an alien or the Doctor? Like, children, it, it kind of feels like that they're scared of of children just going, "Well, this doesn't have a monster in it, so I don't care." But you know, with the right writer, and there are some talented writers in these stories, and there's some beautiful prose and beautiful concepts, um, it, it, you can create a compelling story. Like you said, if, if it was focused on Ryan's dyspraxia or uh, Clara, it could have been focused on her relationship with her mum solely, you know, um, just seeing her maybe deal with her grief of losing her mum because that was a, an event that had a massive impact on her life but it wasn't really touched on um you know as much as as you maybe would have hoped um and yeah it's just such a missed opportunity and and every single one of these stories without fail was more interesting to me before the doctor showed up um well with sarah jane i really liked her story where she was just kind of watching the starlings and she was having this kind of internal dilemma uh with this like click at school and I, I I just enjoyed the imagery of that and as soon as the starlings turned into like a skull I was like oh no this is another one of these because I was just enjoying enjoying the vibe and enjoying um, and maybe you know I'm an adult so maybe this wouldn't be as compelling to to a child but I, I I think they've got to have a little more faith in I mean the A story like you said if it was about her being rebellious and adventurous and and blowing stuff up and experimenting with her Nitro 9, that would have been more than enough. Um, and kids do have adventures without aliens showing up, you know? Plenty do. And plenty of children love watching stories about children having adventures. So there's no reason why they couldn't have done that. Um, uh, I mean, maybe the old one could have had sci-fi in it, but they didn't all need to, really. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and I think they say when you, you're kind of reading it, about halfway through you realise that the pattern of the book is that that every other story is, is one of these stories where the companion meets the Doctor early and forgets about it. So um, it, you sort of, you are sort of, um, and I think also the editors are aware then that they had too many of them and they've tried to space them out <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, about, about halfway through you thought, oh, the next one's going to be one of these, isn't it? And sort of waiting for the do- <laughs> the point where the doctor turns up, and then wondering how they're going to make them forget about it, whether it's going to be an alien bug or or the timeline's mm-hmm. resetting. There was a lot of alien bugs in this. 
like every other story had an alien bug. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to move on to the the other stories um, in this one, um, so we've got uh, my da- my daddy fights monsters. Uh, which tells the story of the young Kate Stewart, um, and she's at school. Um, This is a point in her life where she's living with her mum, Fiona. Uh, She's like Brigadier's first wife after they've separated. So this one felt like it had some weight because you had the stuff about the child struggling to understand and come to terms with the parents' separation. I like that idea. And I like that the alien in this one and it did make sense kind of for there to be an alien in this one, um, is an information broker. So it's not like um, alien invasion or anything else. And it kind of made it feel very relevant with everything like you know, kind of Facebook collecting huge amounts of, of personal information about uh, about people and then using that or it being used to sway elections um, and that kind of thing. And then the bit I really liked was the alien's point of view. So when the uh, the alien has taken the form of Kate's teacher, and has gone round to the house to try and basically just trying to find information out about Unit and the Doctor, if possible, as well, to sell to other aliens. And then the alien point of view thing where she's just left on the doorstep for a while and she starts to think, oh, they're on to me. They know, like, the, the Brigadier's going to be in there or there's going to be Unit troops or maybe even the Doctor's been summoned or something like that. And um, I just I felt that felt quite unique that that they had that alien perspective and it was the alien worrying, not just being like an all powerful alien that's, um, you know, kind of, kind of uh, rant, uh, or, you know, kind of make threats and things. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I like this story. Um, it, it, I thought it fit in well with Kate because we don't know what experiences she had growing up and she is getting little tidbits. She's overhearing the brigadier on the phone. She, her mum's telling her stories and things. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this was a good one. What, uh, what did you think? Yeah, I, I really like this one. I found it very charming. Um, like you said, I really like that the alien in this was kind of pathetic, um, in a very kind of endearing way. You know, he, uh, they were very, uh, humanized in, in as much as an alien can be, you know, like, like you said on the doorstep, having this kind of like spiral of like, okay, well, what if they, they've sussed me out, the brigadier's here, I'm going to get killed. And, and, um, I, I really enjoyed that. And I, I like, like you said, I, I really liked how they used that as a vehicle for exploring, um, this mother daughter relationship, obviously with very limited, uh, time and space to do that in, but I, I liked what was there. I, I really liked, um, the characterization of Kate's mum. Like I, I liked how, they kind of explored the complexity uh, there of being in this kind of strange relationship while being estranged from your husband and and also being a military wife as well. Um, uh, I liked the little touches like that um, and, you know, her having a strained relationship with her daughter and the ending. Uh, yeah, it felt like it told a nice little emotional arc and, and it was nice and... It, it was more what I was wanting from these stories, really. Um, and, you know, like you said, the alien kind of being a facilitator and, and also making sense because it does make sense that Kate might have encountered aliens just because her father is so involved. Unlike the other companions or, or human characters um, who have very separate lives before they meet the doctor it makes sense that kate would occasionally touch with the doctor as well just through the brigadier so yeah i really like that one 
And I, I liked a little bit about Fiona's sort of reflecting on the child's point of view of the world in everything's simple and there's a reason for everything. And it's much more complex when you're an adult and you have to sort of intuit things and, and, and not everything straightforward. I thought there was some, some insightful little bits in that one. What did you think, Jason? There's a lot going on in this story. You basically have three main characters. You have this comically inept alien who's honestly pretty funny. <laughs> you have yeah. a young Kate trying to come to terms with her parents' divorce. And then the real main character of the story winds up being her mother who mm-hmm. knows how to fire a gun because she's uh, an ex-army wife and she saves the day with a very inspired uh, shooting. So taking those in reverse order – Doctor Who, at least especially the new series, is a story about the opposite of gun. There's that famous Stephen Moffat quote about they didn't give this hero a gun. They gave him a screwdriver to fix things. This is a story that ends with a gun saving the day. That maybe conceptually is a little bit off, and especially for an anthology targeted at children. The, the, the monster is very funny. I like that. You could have done a whole story just on a comically inept monster trying to track down the Doctor's companions and failing every single time. Maybe there's an anthology in that, you know, 10 stories about this uh, information (laughs) broker screwing up 10 different uh, acquisitions. But again, the emotional core of the story needs to be the young child of divorce, and I'm afraid I fall into that category myself. And I'm not going to put my own life into every one of these stories, I promise. But I would have preferred if they just picked one of those three stories and run with it. They're trying to put three really involved, deep stories in the same 15-pager. Who is this story about? I, I couldn't quite tell. I liked it. I just wish there had been either a lot more of it or a lot less of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a very valid point. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good um, point about the gun at the end. I mean, I, I suppose that has been something that you could definitely critique about Kate's characterization as well towards the end of the Muffet era, especially, you know, the whole five rounds rapid, I shot the Zygon. And, it, you know, again, it's kind of, it, it feels a bit, yeah, especially when you started off with her being introduced as a very science leads character. Um, whenever you bring that element back, like guns are ho, guns are blazing kind of um, element, it it does it doesn't quite gel. Um, uh, I I um, but I did enjoy you know the the mother's characterization in general. But I, I'd honestly say it's her story mostly. Um, more than anything, because she's the one whose perspective we get the most insight in terms of the emotional side of things. Um, but like you say, it, it's a kind of story that kind of needed a lot more breathing room to really function properly. Um, but I, I'd like the ideas that were there. And I think you can extrapolate from that, Kate, then wanting to join UNIT and, you know, defend people and, and find aliens and that kind of thing as well. So it, it does sort of make sense in that way. So next up, we've got Last of the Dolls, Ruth. Yes, uh, I, I found this one quite interesting. Um, again, it was it was nice to uh, to get some more insight into Davros's childhood because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but The Magician's Apprentice is certainly the only story on the t- television series that has gone into Davros's childhood. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you could kind of critique the whole. Uh, concept of this one thing in the show happened ago we're going to make the story all about that um, with the whole screwdriver thing but it it just logically makes sense that he would be this would be informative experience for him and obviously it was enough to influence 
the very way he programmed the Daleks because they have the whole concept in the witch's familiar of how how did Mercy get into the Daleks and it was because um, of the Doctor showing Mercy to Davros when he was a child. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that that would be a, a kind of concept to build a story around. Again, this is another one where you're kind of constrained by the very limited amount of time you have to tell the story because it was very much like a speed run Frodo and Sam to Mount Doom kind of thing um (laughs) and um you know the concepts at play here weren't given as much breathing room as you would have liked I think um in a in a story with you know with a longer um page count um but I I thought what was there was interesting I, I liked the idea of having him travel with this kind of pacifist character um and he kind of saw him as a savior and obviously it turns out to be the opposite of that and i i did like the, the kind of bit of the ending that was kind of a nice punch where did he fall to his death did davros let him go um i i, I like that kind of ambiguity and i liked yeah I, I i i kind of need to mull this one over a bit more to really have like full conclusions on it but I, I I like the ideas there I just think it could have done with more breathing room and um uh but the ending was was quite interesting I found it odd well two things I thought it was odd that it was written in the present tense which is is unusual obviously for for, for writing like that I suppose that sort of highlights the the fact that he's going to get a prediction about his future so this this is happening right now and and it's talking about um, what's going to happen in his future? Um, but also, I fully expected and um, that he would uh, lose his memory of hearing that prediction or the vision that he was given. Oh, yeah, he never did, um, did he? <laughs> or yeah, I mean, because because this happens so often in this collection. But also, it's odd to leave him with that. So it's like he's got that in his mind now. Um, and and you know, we know that he's somebody that really analyzes things from this story mm-hmm. because he's. He's replayed his his interaction with the Twelfth Doctor and over and over again. He's really analysed the the screwdriver and what it can do and enhanced it and things. So presumably, it's lost like he's going to forget this naturally, is he? This um, so he knows now from childhood that he's going to become Davros. Oh well, he is Davros, but you know what I mean. The uh, the Davros that we know, who's the uh, the Dalek, and he's in the the half Dalek chair and everything like that. Yeah, so, that that feels like a weird omission because yeah, logically. You, you kind of should include that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he presumably didn't get shown all his defeats <laughs> at the hands of the doctor. He would uh, start doing something about them. Yeah. So it's easy to talk about these stories as isolated stories in an anthology and forget that each of these were written by different people with their own careers. So let's talk about Temi O. Oh. She's a Nigerian woman living in London. She is the person who wrote this. She's a neuroscientist. She's the only person, as far as I can tell, who's written for both Black Panther and Doctor Who, which is two incredible notches to have in your writer's belt. This is the kind of writing talent that you were not getting anywhere near Doctor Who until Chris Chibnall took over. So had this been a Moffat era or a RTT era anthology, who knows if the editors of the of the book might even have gone out to find this kind of author. Davros's childhood has been told 
before, I want to give a, a shout out to the Lance Park and Audio Davros, uh, which is the uh, big finish with the Sixth Doctor and Bernard Horsfall and Wendy Padbury. One of my favorite bits of Davros fiction of all time. That's much more of an adult story. It goes into economics and uh, the cannibalism that was going on on Scarrow. Very deep, dark story, and it tells Davros' entire life story and shows that he was just as bad before he got in the wheelchair. Uh, this is a story that's coming at it from a much more sentimental new series point of view. Some of the writing in this short story is among my favorite in the collection. Like this line, the thought of this grips Davros immediately. He would love nothing more than to glimpse the future to see what kind of man he will become. That's incredible writing. And this is an author that I want, that I want to see a lot more of in the Doctor Who universe and not just mm-hmm. doing a 15 page short story. So I'm really happy that this is the kind of voice that we're getting now, which we were not getting in Doctor Who for the longest time. And speaking of the writing, we've got a special guest reading from this story from Trap One regular guest Daniel Knight. So we'll hear that now. They make slow progress at first. Elwyn Rose and Davros scans the surface of the water for any signs of disturbance. It gets harder and harder as the sun sets though and Davros reaches into his bag for the screwdriver. "'What are you looking for?' Elwyn asks, the strain from rowing evident in his voice. "'I can use it as a torch.' With the turn of a dial, he switches on its flashlight function, but in the beam of light, he sees Elwyn's pupils constrict with terror. "'No!' Elwyn shouts. "'Switch it off!' "'Why?' But at that moment, Davros looks back at the water and sees disturbances across its surface. "'Bumps!' And then his blood curdles, hands. Elwyn screams, dropping one of the oars into the water. A body emerges, then a twisted face with no eyes or ears. It reaches its scarred and pockmarked hands towards Elwyn's throat. Davros's limbs unfreeze at the threat. He lunges forward and grabs the other oar. He aims one hard blow at the creature's head. Just as he does so, Davros feels a vice-like grip on his own wrist. He works hard to shake it free, rocking the boat so violently that the two of them almost fall overboard. Then another arm at his ankle, another monstrous face from the deep. In the blink of an eye, there are almost a dozen of them, their features nightmarish in the moonlight. The boys are going to die. They'll be dragged into the toxic lake and torn limb from limb. Elwyn is screaming, doing everything he can to kick the attackers off, but his wiry physique is powerless against them. A thought flashes in Davros's mind, a beam of inspiration. With his free arm, he fumbles for the screwdriver he dropped in his panic. His fingertips find its cool edges. The move is almost reflexive, twisting and activating it the way he's taught himself through years of silent practice. The move is almost reflexive, twisting and activating it the way he's taught himself to through years of silent practice. A beam of light appears from its crystal and lands on the face of the creature holding his wrist. It lets out a roar of pain, and the air is filled with the smell of its burning flesh. This seems to frighten the others. Davros aims the screwdriver at the one holding Elwyn, who releases him with a shriek of agony. Elwyn's face is moon-pale with dread, and he has tears in his eyes. "'That's right!' Davros shouts, wielding the screwdriver now like a weapon. "'And if you want more of this?' More cries this time plaintive, and the mutated people swim backwards. In a couple of seconds, they've all slid back under the water, leaving Elwyn and Davros in harrowed silence. 
Thank you very much, Daniel, for that excellent reading. I think the uh, the other thing that this story takes some of its inspiration from is is I Davros, which is also from Big Finish and is a is a four part or four volume collection about the young life of Davros. And it seems like the the names of his family, like his mum and dad and sister, that are quoted in this story are taken from are taken from that series. And his sister is a slight variation on the name of the creator of the Daleks from the old uh, comic strips that came out in the 60s that were written by David Whittaker. And then the other side of it, the Dals, I think are from a story that came um, that was in the book Dalek, the big sort of silver hardback book that came out a few years ago. Uh, so it sort of blends those two expanded universe things. And there is a little sort of disclaimer at the start, isn't it, to say that there's lots of myths and legends. And uh, it's almost acknowledging that um, that there's a lot of conflicting, even within the TV show, a lot of conflicting uh, stories about the creation of the Daleks in their early years. And presumably it's all been messed up by the Time War anyway. So the next story, uh, Jason, is The Big Sleep, which um, I think we all probably think is one of the jewels in his collection. I will just say that I went into this thinking, oh boy, I have no interest in Madame Vastra as a character. The whole Paternoster gang thing really didn't work for me. I was kind of dreading having to read this story about a character that I don't have much affinity for. Then I read the story. This is probably the best story in the collection, with the possible exception of the epilogue, which we'll get to. This is exactly what I am talking about, right? This is a story that challenges the brief and breaks the brief. This is not a young Vastra coming out of her shell 65 million years ago and seeing the 11th Doctor standing over her with a sonic screwdriver going, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, see you in 65 million years. This is a story that tells an actual tale about Madame Vastra's drive and determination and ethics. And it shows us why she becomes the person that she becomes when she's inexplicably living in 1892, playing at being Sherlock Holmes. Also... This story is called The Big Sleep. Anyone who is a Doctor Who fan has read Terence Dix. We know that Raymond Chandler is one of Terence Dix's foundational texts. We also know that The Big Sleep is the famous Bogey and Bacall movie from the 1940s. This is a name that has a big cultural footprint. And not only that, but as a detective story, The Big Sleep directly inspires one of my favorite movies of all time, The Big Lebowski. So that makes this the second ever story to mash up the Doctor Who universe and the Big Le- and the Big Lebowski universe, the first being an episode of My Little Pony, where the 11th Doctor, My Little Pony, has a mini-adventure in the bowling alley with the Big Lebowski <laughs> and Walter and uh, Donnie in pony format in My Little Pony. Uh, French, uh, yeah, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. So if you're doing a story based on the Big Sleep, that's a great place to get your story from, and you have to get it right, and this story does. This takes place right before the Silurians go into hibernation, as they're afraid that the moon is going to crash into their planet, and they only have, they think they're only going to be underground for 100 years, and they're trying to store their civilization and get back to it. This comes right before the asteroid is supposed to collide, and Vastra is one of the last people who has not gone into hibernation yet, and she is trying to clear out 
the mystery. And of course, because this is based on Chandler, there is a conspiracy involved, and the person that she trusts, again, fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want the story spoiled, the person that she trusts ends up trying to set her up and has this whole thing where he's trying to have her assassinated so she doesn't wake up in 100 years and rat him out. So we see Vastra on her own, chasing down leads and moving through a wide cross-section, not of Los Angeles like the Big Sleep or the Big Lebowski, but a wide cross-section of Earth 65 million years ago. And she has a close encounter with a dinosaur, and she ends up getting her revenge on the bad guy before going into hibernation. This is fun, this is inspired, this is original, this takes a character that I couldn't have cared less about and all of a sudden makes her my favorite character in the entire anthology. So absolute bravo, love this. I'm not going to say too much more about it because if you haven't read it yet, read it, read it, read it. A lot of fun. And I think I'm the first person ever to bring up My Little Pony on the Trap One podcast, so shout out to me. Girl I've dad. never heard of that. What, is there really an 11th Doctor My Little Pony? It's called Dr. Hooves. <laughs> you, 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 Google My Little Pony, The Big Lebowski, and you will see there's this whole five-minute vignette in an episode where the 11th Doctor is teaming up with The Big Lebowski ponies. It's the funniest thing. It's just absolutely awesome. Gentle coats, I'm facing certain calamity, and I couldn't help noticing your remarkable fashion sense. Could I get the name of your incredible tailor? Oh, yeah, man. His name is me. Me. What an unfortunate name. No, man, like, I manufacture all my own garments. We all do, man. Then you've got to help me. I need this suit tailored. It's an emergency. <laughs> Sorry, man. We're just about to start the finals. What's this word you keep using, man? I don't know, man, but guess what? A fourth didn't show, so if you roll with us, we'll alter your suit for you. Yeah, I think I think that arose from the My Little Pony fandom. Like the um like you know you know how fandoms are when they like incorporate other characters and whatnot. And then the, the show writers just wrote Doctor Who's in, apparently. So <laughs> I mean <laughs> uh, I also really enjoyed this story and, and I'd probably say it's also my favourite along with the uh, the epilogue. Um I, I I do really like Vastra. Um, I've always, felt, I, I, I've, I, I think probably because the Snowmen was like, along with the Asylum of the Daleks, it was kind of what got me back into Doctor Who after having not seen it for years uh, since I was really young. Uh, well, not that young. Well, younger, than, younger than you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I. I've always had quite a fondness for the Paternoster gang, um, especially Vastra. And um, I, I do find the whole concept of this kind of Sherlock Holmes uh, play on it, who uh, happens to be a lesbian reptile from the dawn of time, is just a very fun kind of character concept. Um, and I, I've always liked her kind of wisdom and her, uh, and the way Neve McIntosh plays her. Um so yeah, I, I was already kind of, I, I still didn't expect much from this, mainly because of how, I guess, the other previous stories had kind of gone. Although, obviously, with the Davros story um, and the, the Kate Stewart ones, the, the, there was already a pattern emerging of the the non-Doctor-centric ones, where they visit the Companion being the stronger ones. Um, I, I loved the way they explored the, the pre the prehistoric era um, for the Silurians, and I, I loved the world building. Um, 
uh, my knowledge isn't as advanced and you know to know how much was drawn from previous sources and how much was original um but uh, i i i loved the way uh it, it was realized i loved the 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 overall kind of art being told like you said this kind of uh detective pastiche this kind of noir almost um uh i, I yeah it, it was just the strongest story in terms of the pacing, uh, in terms of the characterization, um, and it 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 did so much more with the limited time it had than the other stories, um, which I was really impressed by. I want to just jump back in. This also depends heavily on the prologue to Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which is one of the first Target novelizations and one of the greatest Doctor Who literature. Shout out to the podcast of the same name. One of the greatest bits of Doctor Who literature of all time. So somebody clearly read very carefully through Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters and put some of those same details on the short story. So again, I just I can't salute this enough. Cannot salute this enough. Yeah, yeah, I love this one. I, th- I think it is the highlight. I'm uh, I'm with Ruth in terms of coming at it from the point of view of really liking the Paternoster gang uh, and enjoying the characters already. Um, and I think... Uh, as you say, there's there's a lot more detail about Silurian society back millions of years ago in, in the cave monsters. Um, you know what we've got in in the modern series is you know there's sort of there's the different types of Silurian where there's the warriors and scientists and things. But obviously, a civilization needs more than that, so that it's it's much more nuanced here and broken down. And yeah, it may, makes sense that she is working as a detective uh, when we see her in the series in human times because she was she was a detective and investigator back in the past as well. She's already got those skills and that training and everything. And yeah, it's, it's, it's like I say, it's, it's got excitement in it, like the fight with the dinosaur and everything. It's got kind of intrigue. And, uh, you know, it really goes into, into her character and that sort of tenacity. And, and I think probably not sure when these were written, but the, the little bits of uh, how the civilization responded to the, to the, the, the rogue planetoid heading towards Earth, you know, kind of in, in the, sort of slightly post-pandemic times you, you kind of recognize that you know people some people just said oh it's not real it's not going to happen and mm. uh you know refuse to uh, to believe it and everything and uh, yeah that kind of resonates differently now as well in um, in these times and also like the the kind of political aspect as well of this story is just far and away it, it's it's so funny to think that this is in the same story as you know, like Clara Oswald and the Enchanted Forest or, or Chemistry, both of which feel very, like I said, more kind of younger oriented. Um, mm. uh, this one's very much the opposite of that. Uh, and yet, you know, it still feels accessible, I think. Um, although, you know, Dave Rudin, that's just his kind of writing style. is a lot more kind of in-depth, very into the world building, uh, the law kind of thing. Um, he's always very well researched, as you say. Um, and I've always loved his stories. Like All of his collections are some of my absolute favourite uh, anthology collections for Dot 2. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the political angle of, of essentially they're kind of using this event as a means to kind of 
cleanse their civilization, quote unquote. Uh, they want to get rid of the riffraff, and uh, uh, it's very interesting to see someone who's kind of the judge, this jurisdiction representing. Uh, political authority specifically the kind of policing authority essentially saying well I'm going to use my power to make sure that those that we deem criminals don't make it to our wonderful new utopia that awaits us on the other side Um, and I love the way that Vastra's perspective with I I can't remember the character's name he's like the high judge um you know you see at the beginning when they have their first scene together she's got a lot more much more grounded kind of um empathetic perspective and he calls it cynical but actually you know his idea of a utopia is one that involves the death of of other people um that he deems to be not worthy and um i think that's very interesting and i i really liked that kind of political bite that it had and then we have a story with Amy and Rory, uh, the girl who tore through the universe. Um, and this, you know, as I was saying before, this this kind of picks up the point that this is Amy after she's had that initial meeting with the Doctor as a young child. And then, you know, we know from the 11th hour that she, she saw various therapists and things because she kept insisting that this happened. And everyone tried to say, well, it, it couldn't have happened, it didn't happen. Uh, but she's got this singular drive to to find the doctor again um, and uh, is, is sort of reading all about uh, quantum physics um, and all this kind of stuff, which I didn't really felt fit with the character on TV. Um, there's no point when I think she sort of reveals like any particular great scientific knowledge like, to, to suggest that she has spent all this time researching it in her spare time. And it's not, it's not like a Doctor Who story, is it? It's a bit more sort of... Um, I don't know, kind of metaphysical the way. So they, they, Rory points her towards these hidden notes um, from Isaac Newton that uh, that suggests maybe he was trying to, uh, you know, find a way to travel through time or to to open multiverses, which is obviously very in vogue at the moment um, in movies and things. Um, and then, yeah, something quite esoteric about the way that you actually do it is just to sort of think in a particular way. It, it reminded me more of, um, you know, the sort of um, like his ba- Dark Materials or, or Susanna Clarke's kind of writing, mm-hmm. um, more more than Doctor Who in that way. But then I did really enjoy the story as well. It's not kind of you wouldn't want Doctor Who always to be like this, but but I I did really enjoy it because there is a lot to Amy's backstory, isn't there, where she can't really remember her parents, but she doesn't know what happened to them. There's that weird corner of eye thing going on in the house, which she's sort of slightly aware of um and then just that, that it's quite creepy isn't it the, the way she she brings the mum back through from this alternative universe where she wasn't uh you know kind of eaten up by the crack so but she just sort of becomes a zombie when she does and then there's these sort of veiled ideas from isaac newton's notes that if somebody in another universe realizes you're not from there that it's dangerous so yeah, it's probably again another story that could have done with more room to breathe and explore some of these things. But I enjoyed it and felt that it did it did capture her character quite a lot as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I I like Amy a lot as a character. She's she's one of my favorites, and um, I, I agree with you. I I do think the whole <laughs> it felt a little bit contrived. The whole how they got to that point of the. the 
timey wimey universe meddling stuff because I, I I I definitely like the way that they took advantage of the whole concept of her being obsessed with the Doctor, um, and um, I, I don't think it would it would have been nice to have a story separate from that. But uh, she's one of those characters like Kate where you can do uh, something a bit more focus on the doctor and and the sci-fi element of it uh, purely because that's the character's backstory and it accommodates that you know uh, she has already met the doctor as a child so it does make sense and she has a this crack in her room so she would have weird metaphysical stuff happening to her um so yeah i i really like the concept in this one um i really liked her and rory going on a little road trip uh i like the focus on their relationship um i like that it starts off being about the doctor but then actually becomes much more about amy herself as it should have been as all of these stories should have been in my opinion um because they're the ones on the cover <laughs> and um uh, yeah, I like the idea of exploring her mum a bit more um, and, and the concept because, you know, it, it's kind of, when you actually think about it, it is, it is a very hard kind of weird concept to get your head around because her mother did exist, but she doesn't anymore. So she's not like she was around in her childhood and then, you know, died or, or whatever. She just was, is, she does, she simultaneously does and doesn't exist in Amy's life throughout her life. Um, so I liked that concept a lot and I, I thought it was very interesting. But again, this needed way more breathing room um, to really do justice to to the, the whole concept. Um, again, it, it feels very rushed. And I, I don't blame the writer for that because it, it's such a constrained, <laughs> it's such a constrained amount of time to fit all of that in. But yeah, it, it I, I, I'd say it was a good concept that could have been something even greater than what it ended up being. But it was still enjoyable. I like to look at the inspirations behind these short stories. What other tale or bit of genre fiction is in the author's head when they pitch their story and sit down to write? So there is a long tradition in the American thriller genre about some plucky adventurer, be it a professor or a military officer, cracking some historical mystery mystery by finding documents that nobody has seen in hundreds or thousands of years. Clive Cussler has made a career out of doing this. A little more infamously, Dan Brown has made a career out of being one of the worst prose practitioners in history to sell billions and billions of books. And then I have this really toxic relationship in which I read way too much Steve Berry fiction, but he's very much on the same mode. His character is a Navy alum who worked for the U.S. Department of Justice, and in every book, goes around the globe, cracks some historical mystery, finds missing documents, sets things to rights. This is basically that story. This is National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. This is Amy going on a mission and spending 10 minutes at the Isaac Newton Museum and finding these documents hidden under the Isaac Newton apple tree. That's a great idea. That's really clever, and it's really fun. And then the story goes in a very dark direction by having Amy go into the multiverse and bring her mother back across the dimensional portal. And, of course, her mother essentially you know, goes catatonic when this happens because she's not meant to cross the dimensional portal. So you do have this odd mashup of depressing multiverse story kind of like it takes you away in the new series 
with this uh, swashbuckling Steve Berry, Dan Brown, Clive Cussler, National Treasure kind of storytelling. This was very good. Not my favorite in the collection, but it's a fun story to think about and a fun story to read. I do love National Treasure. I'm, I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. So yeah, we're, we're <laughs> talking about National Treasure. Yeah. And then uh, we have Velvet Hugs, uh, Ruth, which is the other story written yes. by a star of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I really enjoyed this one. Um, I was, I, I mean, I I was uh, kind of going in expecting it to be like the other companion centric ones, except Amy's one. Uh, so I was on the guard a bit, uh, but I was just delighted and pleasantly surprised for, to find that it was just this kind of very sweet sentimental and genuine kind of chronicle of Joe's early life and I thought that was absolutely lovely and you know it doesn't really fit the short story kind of format very much uh it doesn't tell a self-contained arc or whatever but to be honest with you I was just kind of really glad to just have this kind of very simple look an insight into a, a companion's history and life and um and it was done in a very it was it was very not you know written in a very lovely and kind of cozy way uh i i really liked uh the way she she wrote this uh, i loved the description and um i loved the way she characterized joe and obviously she she of course she knows her better than anyone but um yeah i i just thought it was delightful and um and really sweet and authentic. And I love the little framing device of uh, her with her grandchildren. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was very sweet. Yeah, I, I love this one um, as well because, and it would have been interesting maybe if, if some more of them had been like this, but I suppose because it's it's Joe now looking back over a very long life, it, it adds more weight to that. And and it did feel like she was drawing on a lot of experience because a lot of the descriptions were about like smells and things like that, like her, her uncle's study smelling of, uh, was it like leather and cigars? And then, you know, the idea of <laughs> yeah, the, the, the velvet hugs thing, like you can imagine that when she got a hug from John Pertwee, that's, that was the lasting impression because he was you know, mm. kind of wearing a velvet mm. suit and things like that. So it felt, it felt authentic in that way because a lot of sort of tactile, sensory memories in it um and then yeah like really cheekily having uh iris wild time in it as well as, uh, as the other character that she she plays for big finish as well so it was uh it was uh, it was yeah very cool in that way but yeah just just really charming story this one i thought just yeah really really nice i said this earlier this is basically katie manning's autobiography this is a, a whole lot of katie manning in it if you've met katie there's you're two people in your life. You're the person you are before you meet Katie, Katie Manning, then you're the person you are after you meet Katie Manning. She's that memorable. She's she's wonderful. And I'm fortunately in the after meeting Katie Manning portion of my existence. Now, there is a tradition in Doctor Who books recently of putting an actor's name on the cover who did not write the book. There's been a lot of that going about where you have this big ticket marquee name on the cover of the book. And then you turn to the title page and the acknowledgments page, and it turns out somebody else wrote the book with a little bit of contribution from the from the actor in question. I have no doubt that Katie Manning wrote every word of this short story herself because it does have first-time writer syndrome. Lots of run-on sentences. Every single noun has an 
adjective in front of it. And if you're a more experienced writer, you know that less is more. You're not going to do that. So Katie definitely wrote this. It's from the heart. It's a lot of fun. And it's just like getting to meet Katie Manning. This is utterly, mm-hmm. utterly Katie. And it's great that we have it in the collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, you you know, regardless of, it, it's like you said, it, there's, there's plenty you could critique about it, but it, it feels so genuine and warm and authentic. But that just, you know, I, I, I just, you instantly just become endeared by it and 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 that's honestly i would have been perfectly happy with just uh, all of the companion sending stories just being kind of lovely insights from the from the 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 actors themselves or someone who really understood the character thoroughly and um rather than having to rely on the doctor just just this is kind of what I wanted more. I mean, I would have liked more of a story arc and themes and, and whatnot. Um, but you know, this is what the kind of thing I really enjoy just seeing these little insights and especially something that came so clearly from the heart and, and had so much sincerity and wasn't just by the numbers, um, and forgettable and, and something that was kind of hand waved away at the end. Um, it actually had kind of resonance and I loved, I loved uh, like you said, the way that you can really feel the kind of the, the, the way she describes the senses and the details and things like that. Um, there's such an authenticity to that. And it makes Joe as a character feel so vibrant. Um, and as I was saying before, a lot of the these companion characters in this book, they're very much two-dimensional. They're not even necessarily two-dimensional versions of themselves. They're just generic companions. You know, there's nothing to really distinguish them from each other um, besides kind of very cursory details um, with the exception of maybe the Amy one because you have her determination and and her, her drive and her, her bossiness and things like that. Um, so, yeah, this 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 felt like a, just a nice, warm, cosy kind of... Uh, the, the the story equivalent of a nice cup of tea at the end of the day. Mm. <laughs> and the detail that Joe names one of her dogs after Alpha Centauri is mm-hmm. one of the best little yeah, grace notes I love in the whole that. collection. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes you wonder what other dogs she's had over the years, doesn't it? And uh, yeah, whether there's uh, you know an Agador and. Uh, <laughs> and then rounding off the collection, we've got. Um, well, it's called an epilogue, but it is really a short story in its in its own right, and this is tempered. I was an English lit major for a semester and a half, so I quickly got out of that. wasn't really suited for me. However, I did learn from that semester and a half that a short story is not the same as a novel. It is supposed to have some sort of twist or gut punch or revelation at the end. It is not merely a five-minute minisode, right? So this particular story really, really fits the bill. This is a wickedly clever story with twist and twist and turn. And also, like the best stories in the collection, it gets its inspiration from somewhere else. So if The Big Sleep is it's getting its inspiration from Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe, Humphrey Bogart, and if the Amy story is getting its inspiration from National Treasure and that whole subgenre of fiction – this is basically the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Now, January 1st, 2013, I'm looking for a new book to start reading on New Year's Day. 
So I pick up for free on the Kindle the unedited version of Count of Monte Cristo, and I start reading it a chapter a day, and I finish it on May 29th. That's how long it took to get through. And I posted on Facebook that night, you know, after having read this, I never need to read another book again. That's how perfect Count of Monte Cristo is. It's this long, elaborate revenge plot, and it's this character living during the Napoleonic Wars, and he's betrayed by three or four people, uh, goes to prison, has this daring, almost impossible escape from prison, takes in with pirates, is given a clue to an amazing treasure hoard, finds the treasure, and uses his wealth and his training and his knowledge and experience over 20 years in exile to get his revenge very slowly and methodically upon everybody. And there's a lot of vignettes in the book, and by the end it all ties together beautifully. So when I finished reading this book, I said, this is the last book that I ever need to read. That's how good Count of Monte Cristo is. Well, the very next day I was hit by a train, and it nearly was the very last book that I ever read. But fortunately, I'm well past that now. So Count of Monte Cristo is one of my abiding favorites. This is a short story, but it's telling the same exact tale. It's the master's origin story and how he gets his revenge on the people who turned him into the monster that he is. And it takes a little bit of time to figure out who's who because it starts off with a lot of isolated vignettes. But by the end, it all ties together beautifully. Not only that, it plays with the identity of which character in the story is the master. You start off thinking that it's Roger Delgado, but then another character – and I'm not going to spoil this at all. No need to fast forward. Another character steps out of the shadows and reveals that this character has been the master the whole time and the other one is a hologram. And it is a really wicked – wicked twist. So this is exactly the kind of story that the collection needed more of. Gets its inspiration from one of the greatest novels of all time. Has an interesting twist as to who the protagonist is. And it's just a great story. The master slowly getting their revenge on everybody who turned them into what they are. And again, I just really, really love this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, like 100% with you, Jason. Like This one has so much punch to it. It's, it's constantly full of twists and turns. I, I love the kind of, the, the way each vignette is, is structured as well. Um, I love how you're just having these isolated kind of insights into these various Time Lords and, and the you know the twist is coming after the first one. Um, and it, it, it's, it's fantastic. And, and you're constantly left guessing and, and the punch at the end is just perfect um and i I kind of want to use this as a way to kind of zoom out uh all of these stories and come back to what we were discussing at the beginning and this it's just it's it's glaring to me what a difference there is between these stories and the, the the generic companion doctor ones like and it comes back to i think again this I feel like this. Maybe it was the person who commissioned the the BBC commissioning this book, or uh, the, the editor who put it together. But th- there's such a lack of faith in the companions to to have the same kind of verve and 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 interest and and charisma that all of the non non companion characters, with the exception of Joe and Amy, have. That you know that there's. 
they they're allowed to stand on their own they're allowed to be the center of the story it's their origin story you know it, it's it's about them it's about what made them who they are it's about an important event in their life it's not just these random little encounters that mean nothing ultimately they absolutely mean nothing um they have no resonance they're they're not about the character they're just about this very kind of by the numbers story and and you know you you just jump so much between these two stories because of the way it's structured that it's kind of this whiplash in quality um and it's just very interesting me to me because i think it's indicative of a problem that happens a lot in these kind of anthology collections like i said i've read a lot of these and far and away the best ones are the ones about non-companion characters because all of the companion ones they're very much really about the doctor ultimately um or very much about the kind of companion as an accessory to the doctor or as a hero but very much in a way that's helping the doctor rather than respecting their agency and their what makes them special as individuals and characters um and like i said i'm writing a whole series at the moment uh, with an amazing team uh, about a companion um and you know, I, I just feel like there's a lot of mispotential going on here. And um, I, I, I really wish that the other stories were had the same confidence in their central characters as, as this one or the Vastra one, um, because that's when they really, really shine and become something special and unique. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think um, th- those ones are, are a missed opportunity. It's a shame. And yeah, I love Tempered as well. I really am just getting those vignettes of what other Time Lords are up to who aren't presidents or renegade Time Lords or, or anybody else. Just, you know, what the uh, the, f- the first one, what, he, what his TARDIS is like and, uh, and what they get up to. The one who's discovered the death zone and, and is, is kind of running their own weird experiments uh, out in the death zone and things. Those Those are just really cool vignettes on their own. Uh, and it all uh, it all ties together as well as you say. So yeah, it's um, it's a, overall it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> some stories it's definitely worth uh, worth reading though. I think. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say um, this one is very much feels like it, it could easily have been from the um, one of the like master century anthologies. Um, I think they did one with. Um, there was one that came out relatively recently um, and then there was also a Missy book as well and it, it very much feels at home in those sorts of books. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just love reading about the master. <laughs> I, I, I love, I, I, I find, uh, I suppose because they're more of an anti-hero character or, uh, you know, more of a villainous character, it just makes them very interesting to read about. Um, and um this was just a very well well told one yeah that recent anthology is is i am the master um Mm -hmm. it's got um the uh the sasha duan incarnation on the cover and there's there's a brilliant story in that one written by matthew sweet and it's set during that incarnation of the masters sort of exile on earth from spyfall when um when when he's on earth for like 100 years or something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's in soviet russia and it's such a brilliantly written story um I'd, I'd recommend anybody looking that one out as well it's definitely the uh, the highlight of that collection i'm also going to give my second and final lance parkin shout out of the hour 
but he did the last of the Eighth Doctor adventures in 2005, the Gallifrey Chronicles, in which one of the main characters is the Master's father, exiled to Earth in the 1970s. There's a lot of good Master stories out there if you know where to look. Yeah, I remember that one now. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've already said my piece about the kind of the 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 range of ways in which this premise has been interpreted and how much how much better some stories are than others that really take advantage of the the premise um, and the brief. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, if there is another volume of this, they will. Uh... They'll take that on board and uh, and uh, yeah do do some more of the stories that don't don't hinge on unexpected meetings with the doctor. Yeah, and like I said, I I think it's an it's a general issue that I've noticed with these books, um, and I I don't know. It's it's very interesting to me because I wonder is it how people see perceive the companion role? Um, is it you know what what's the logic behind it? Is is it because the doctor just naturally attracts the limelight and the focus um but that that does feel kind of very different from the tv series which especially in the new series has been so focused on the companions and their interiority um so yeah i i'm very intrigued by why there's this kind of instinct to fall back on that kind of formulaic interpretation of the dynamic um rather than you know trying something different and and maybe focusing more on the companion's perspective and agency yeah absolutely yeah like the modern series it is about equal billing isn't it and mm-hmm. uh, weight so yeah it's um it does seem very regressive and like I said, the, the doctor's not on the cover of this book. It, you know, the the, the 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 cover says the early lives of the doc- of friends and foes as they've never been told before, and it's like, I mean, I agree half with that. Half of the book is has never been told before, but half of it has also been stories and formulas that we've seen a thousand times before. Like, I you could you could honestly just beat by beat say, oh, look, the doctor's shown up. I know what he's going to say. I know what she's going to say. Uh, I was investigating this and I found this and I'm going to give you some exposition about this alien. Oh, my goodness. Are you talking about aliens? And it's like, we've done this so many times before and it's like, come on, come on. Like, this can't be very interesting to write about. Surely, like, if I was if I was given this 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 brief i'd be like right i'm going to write about clara's grief uh about losing her mom and her strained relationship with her dad that resulted um you know there's just so many things that you could do with it and i've honestly got to wonder like were they constrained did they have to include aliens did they have to include the doctor were they limited by what they could do with these stories um because it's very interesting to me that there is this recurring formula they it must have been part of the brief so yeah it's interesting and then finally jason before we start recording you mentioned there was a couple of stories where you thought it wasn't clear which doctor was appearing which which ones are those the ryan and yaz story I'm pretty positive was the second doctor, and you did confirm that earlier in the recording. Dressed like Matt Smith, which is who you'd expect in a new series anthology, but with the straight black hair, which could only describe Patrick Trout. Mm-hmm. The other one that I wasn't 
quite clear on was the Martha story. I think that was Christopher Eccleston because they yeah. referenced the northern accent. But other than that, there aren't a lot of clues. And then for honorable mention, the Sophie Aldred story plays around. You think it's going to be the seventh doctor because that was Ace's mm-hmm. doctor. And then the doctor, when they're lecturing, says brilliant. And you think it's going to be David Tennant. And then it winds up being Jodie Whittaker, which ties into mm-hmm. the eventual power of the doctor. But yeah, so I guess it was the second doctor for Ryan and Yaz. And I guess it was uh, the ninth doctor for uh, – Dr. Martha Jones. I, I took it to be the ninth doctor, given the the, the, the Northern accent reference. The, I thought the Sophie Elder story, it almost gets a bit clumsy in the end, how she yeah. um, avoids, strenuously avoids using any pronouns for like the longest time and just keeps saying the science teacher um, without sort of saying, well, I don't know this. Te- this is my favorite teacher. The only teacher I've ever had a connection with, but I don't know her name. Um, <laughs> but I, and I, don't even make any reference to why the teacher hasn't given the name. Um, so those bits sort of, they shouldn't be standing out, I suppose, in a story yeah. like that. Just keep saying the science teacher, my favourite science teacher, when you I, would definitely know your favourite teacher's name. You know, it, it, just talking about this has just made me realise, again, it lends to how arbitrary, like, the choices are for the Doctor. Like, why the ninth Doctor for Martha? Why the second Doctor for Yaz and Ryan? Like, again, it kind of shows that they were... I just feel like the writers had this list of things to include and they were like, well, it would be cool if this Doctor showed up or I really like this Doctor without any kind of... enough thought going into the, the hows and the whys and does this make sense for the story, you know? Um, but, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think I think it's a fair point. Yeah, so uh, that's our look at uh, origin stories, which is available now from all good booksellers. Before we wrap up, if you just each like to let us our listeners know where we can, where else we can find you and your work online, uh, Ruth. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Undiscovered Adventure, which is Undiscovered ADV. Uh, and I have been working for a very long time on a project called Clara Oswald, The Untold Adventures. Uh, we've been on hiatus for a while uh, for many reasons, uh, but uh, we're really ramping things up again now. And uh, we very recently revealed uh, a full uh, tour and render of uh, the series TARDIS Design. Uh, which is very exciting. Um, so, yeah, that's where you can find us. Um, and uh, my project uh, Twitter is Clara Oswald TUA, um, and the website is theuntoldadventures.com. Brilliant. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. And Jason, our regular listeners will be will be familiar. But uh, if we've uh, if we've got any anybody new aboard. I'm still on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, at DR Who Novels, and I am still the host of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, which is now in its second full year of episodes. We just released episode 54, and I will give a shout out that episode 54 was guest hosted by somebody who is not me, and uh, that person very modestly has not mentioned it so far during this recording. But Mark was my guest host for my episode about the 1980 novelization, Doctor Who and the Invasion of Time. Mark did a terrific job as guest host. And in fact, the number of downloads for that episode, which only came out three days ago, is much higher than my usual download rate. So Mark may be the secret sauce that makes my podcast work. (laughs) I may have to just turn over the keys to him. And hopefully we'll have Ruth on in the not-too-distant future. 
I'd be honoured. Oh, well, th- thank you for the kind words about that, and thank you for for letting me guest host. It was uh, it was an honour because it is one of my favourite podcasts. So it was uh, it was great to do that. And I'll put a link to where we can find uh, find that episode and and the rest of the Doctor Who literature podcast as well. You can find me on Twitter as at Quark McMalice, and you can follow the podcast as at Trap One underscore. Find all our previous episodes on trapone.podbean.com or your podcatcher of choice. And we'd be eternally grateful if you would leave us a star rating or a uh, or a nice review. That would be uh, that would be really good and would help other Doctor Who fans find the podcast. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much to Daniel Knight for his excellent guest reading. Join us next time for another panel talking about something else from the world of Doctor Who. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Good night now. And there we go.